Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Long COVID. During this podcast, Dr. Renzo Shearer, Director of the International HIV Training Center and Professor of Medicine in the Section of Infectious Diseases and Global Health in the Department of Medicine at the University of Chicago, discusses evolving aspects of long COVID, including prevalence, potential causes and risk factors, signs and symptoms, and treatment strategies under consideration. For more information about Dr. Shearer and for a link to the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Shearer has to say about long COVID. Thanks to Clinical Care Options for the opportunity to talk about this really tough topic. You know, the first difficulty, one of many with what we call long COVID, which is also called PASC or the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, is really a, a definition that's workable that allows us both to understand it and to correctly diagnose and categorize patients, but also to prospectively conduct reasonable clinical trials that look at like patients for, uh, for therapies or for observational studies. So several attempts at a definition have been made. You see one that is from WHO, new symptoms that affect everyday function that emerge within four weeks to three months after first being infected and that last for at least two months. So you can hear some uh, durability of those signs and symptoms that occur four weeks to three months after the first infection. So something after the acute event. And what the characteristics that have been described are the wild fluctuations can occur over time. So you can see fairly serious signs and symptoms that remit and then actually may recur. And there's quite a bit of overlap with what happens to folks who, who have an, a, a serious acute uh, illness who are hospitalized and then uh, post-hospitalization sequelae of events that occurred in the hospital. And you see on the right, the protean manifestations that really mirror uh, the acute manifestations of SARS-CoV-2. So we think of uh, this as primarily a respiratory illness and certainly chronic pulmonary symptoms can occur with cough, shortness of breath. And for those who've had uh, pneumonia and even ARDS pulmonary fibrosis, and then a variety of other organ systems can be involved. And the endocrine system appears to be associated with higher incidence of hyperglycemia, both diabetes and diabetic ketoacidosis. Cardiac manifestations can include myocardial ischemia and arrhythmia, core pulmonale and myocarditis. A variety of skin manifestations with petechiae, with an erythematous rash, even urticaria and vesicles have been described. And perineal-like lesions. And then some of the most difficult sequelae are the CNS complications with long-standing headache, dizziness, or problem with uh, balance. Certainly, anosmia can occur late in, in the course of the illness, though it's often uh, earlier. Arthralgias, myalgias, even the Guillain-Barre syndrome has been associated with the long COVID syndrome. I think we're all familiar with the problem with thromboembolism in acute hospitalized patients. There can be incidents of thromboembolism, deep vein thrombosis, and pulmonary embolism in the long COVID syndrome. You can see elevated enzymes. You can see 
acute kidney injury during that period of time with proteinuria and hematuria. And then also surprisingly, and actually more often seen during the Omicron variant epidemic, gastrointestinal signs and symptoms with vomiting, diarrhea, nausea, and abdominal pain. So that's a background, and that makes it very difficult for us to actually categorize and get a handle on the patient population that we're describing. So there have been a number of different estimates of the prevalence of long COVID. You can see here that uh, this is from the American Association of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, where some 10 to 30% of individuals who survive an initial infection are estimated to have and again, this is with a generous definition with one or more symptom that lasts for two months or more following uh, the acute event. So taking the broadest possible net, that's probably compatible with that wide range of 10 to 30%. It's very important that when it's single symptoms or mild symptoms, that the majority of patients who report some of those have seemed to improve and a substantial number will resolve over six months. So I think a better estimate of those who actually display an ongoing chronic illness that is a substantial barrier to normal activities is somewhat smaller as a percentage of all people with COVID-19, something closer to the range of 1% to 5%. And as you can see, with uh, the survival of 80 million people in the United States with SARS-CoV-2 infection, even a 1% burden is is a massive burden that will have a substantial impact on our health system. So why do we see long COVID? And there, there's probably a multiplicity of causes and that will lead to this great range of uh, clinical signs and symptoms. And much of this, I think we're learning from the acute phase and hospitalization that probably parallels the development of long COVID. So we have seen that SARS-CoV-2 can directly have neuroinvasion and microglial cells and involved in anosmia and the functions of smell and taste. We've seen dysregulated immune responses with striking chemokine and cytokine releases that are probably paying, playing a role. That can lead to autoinflammation, and uh, that is likely also to be part of the pathogenesis. For those who were hospitalized and actually had developed ARDS or spent time in intensive care, there may be overlap in the post-long COVID syndrome for those who've been hospitalized with post-ICU syndrome. And then there's a question of, is there ongoing active live virus in immunologically privileged sites, particularly in the central nervous system? And that is an active area of investigation. And then because of the uh, targeting of the ACE2 protein in blood vessels, endothelial injury and ongoing endothelial dysfunction is likely also to be associated with the protein manifestations, including thromboembolism, but probably not limited to that. And you can see in each of those, there are some subcategories for, for example, other manifestations and potential causes in the neurologic manifestations are inflammatory neurotoxicity, and again, blood vessels, microvascular thrombosis, and even neurodegeneration has been seen. I mentioned already the diabetes impact. There's also been a thyroiditis and thyroid changes that have been associated. And also in women, some tendency towards menstrual cycle irregularity. And then finally, with the protein immunologic manifestations, we've seen changes in the makeup and composition of the T-cell subsets, 
the incidence of multi-inflammatory syndrome in children and also in adults, and the presence of autoimmune antibodies. So this is also vexing, I think, for the potential for well-conducted clinical trials that are trying to address each of these different pathogenic properties, or even look at therapies that might target one or more of them. So there was a very interesting analysis uh, at the cellular level from Sue recently that was published in Cell that looked at associations and risk factors for the development of long COVID using a very sophisticated a plasma multiomics, single cell multiomics, looking at all of the antibodies and SARS-CoV-2 antibodies, matching them with symptoms and signs. And they found those things that seemed to be associated with the development of long COVID included the development of autoantibodies, the uh, virus load, SARS-CoV-2 virus load, and also the presence of some pre-existing conditions, in particular type 2 diabetes, the degree of SARS-CoV-2 viremia, as I mentioned, a reactivation of Epstein-Barr virus, and then among the autoantibodies, particularly the type 1 interferons and those autoantibodies associated with systemic lupus erythematosus. In each of these associations, that is something short of causation. We've certainly seen that the Epstein-Barr virus can reactivate in a variety of chronic conditions, for example. Certainly can happen in HIV, it can happen in people with either transplant or with cancer and chemotherapy. That alone doesn't mean it's causative, but it's an intriguing association that is at least an avenue for further research. So digging down into some of the specific symptoms that patients with long COVID have, this is one analysis looking at people following hospitalization in which they found that only one in five were completely felt well and had no symptoms after 12 months. And most prominently mentioned in this trial, and I think a very common theme in long COVID papers is poor exercise tolerance, fatigue, dyspnea, difficulty concentrating, the so-called brain fog and trouble finding words. And also, I think very importantly, sleep disruption. Sleep disruption, of course, may aggravate ongoing neurologic dysfunction. And you can see that there are some differences in, with each of these different signs and symptoms, the likelihood that they're occurring at March, at month five, in red, in month nine, in green, and at month 12. And so, with the variation that occurs, it's quite difficult to categorize patients into um, subgroups. It does seem that there's a tendency towards a group with more dyspnea exertion and cardiorespiratory issues, and then another group that has a predominance of neurologic findings. But it's really too early to make those um, subcategories. So I think if you took home nothing else from this talk, this would be the one that I would emphasize the most with our patients, both those who are unvaccinated and those who are vaccinated. And that is that while we're seeing long COVID in people following a breakthrough infection, it appears to be at a quite a lower rate in those people who are vaccinated than unvaccinated. So if you need any additional evidence to try to persuade someone who is not vaccinated, that they should, uh, they should take it to protect themselves and their health from an acute hospital stay, you can add the additional benefit of preventing or reducing the likelihood uh, and the severity of long COVID. And we've also seen in a, a couple of small studies that in those who were unvaccinated, who had developed long COVID, that vaccination after the fact actually led to improvement 
or even resolution in some cases. So those are two strong arguments added to all the reasons that we already have for encouraging people to uh, be vaccinated and to get boosted. So I've mentioned that we have as many as 10 to 30% of people will have one or more symptom lasting for two months or more. We've seen that in those folks who develop it following the initial event, it seems to be more common in uh, younger female patients and those who are not admitted to hospital who have a mild initial illness. And the greatest group with severe long COVID appears to be those who've had severe illness to begin. They've been hospitalized, they've had ARDS, or they've had other major end organ injury like a myocardial infarction or pulmonary fibrosis or acute kidney injury requiring dialysis, or they've had thromboembolic disease. So for those who are most likely to continue to have severe illness related to SARS-CoV-2 infection, it's pretty clear that that is um, the most likely group for that category is those who've been hospitalized. But I don't mean to diminish what we've seen with some of the other patients as well. This can be quite worrisome. And I'll, I'll just cite from a couple of other papers. Now, there was one looking at a group of non-hospitalized patients. This was from CDC that found that older age and associated comorbidities put someone at greater risk for long COVID, that 20% of people after a period of three months did not feel like they had returned to health. And this was a group that wasn't very sick to begin with. So that's one in five, that's a substantial number. And one of the questions is, well, what do we know about the longest term patients, those in China or in Europe who had uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection a year ago? So there was one analysis from China that found 10% of individuals one year after their initial infection were still too sick to go back to work. They did not feel well enough to return to normal function. So that's, that's one in 10. There was another uh, analysis from the United Kingdom at six months that found that one in five individuals after six months still felt like they had some severe uh, signs and symptoms. Only a third of that total cohort who had been hospitalized previously felt like they had made a complete return to health. And the most common problems, again, in that group were this very familiar list that I've mentioned, shortness of breath, poor exercise tolerance, severe fatigue that relapses and remits, or the CNS signs and symptoms of headache, brain fog, um, sleep disruption, and trouble with concentration. So the CDC, I think, gave very good advice for what we should do in the meantime with the clinical management of long COVID, saying that, first of all, the the massive burden of patients is going to require this to be managed by primary care providers, and, and that that's really the, the first and logical place for them to receive care. They recommend patient-centered approaches to optimize their quality of life and function. The key to that would be to listen to patients, first of all, to endorse the signs and symptoms that they are describing, to acknowledge that long COVID is a real clinical syndrome, not to dismiss them or to assume that anyone is, uh, is malingering or to take them seriously and respectfully. Also to try to encourage clinicians not to only think that imaging or laboratory values are sort of the measure of whether or not something is clinically real, uh, because in many cases, there are some exhaustive workups that have been done for patients who are going through these signs and symptoms and, they, and they're not revealing. They don't come up with much in the way of, of helpful uh, outcomes. 
So the CDC sort of suggested in that first three-month period that it's quite reasonable to be conservative, to not necessarily embark on a large workup. And remember that the majority of patients actually do gradually improve, that time is on your side for most people. When you get to the six-month marker and further, then it certainly makes sense to think further about other diagnostic tests that might be helpful to make sure in all of these cases that you're not using this this large diagnosis of long COVID and missing something that is treatable. We all know how subtle, for example, uh, hypothyroidism or thyroid disease can be in an elderly person, for example, or not looking for other diseases like HIV that can have subtle presentations and lead to chronic uh, mild symptomatology in their, in their early months. And then with the patient, engaging them to set achievable goals with shared decision-making and talk about how you can make, you know, deal with insomnia or sleep disruption, how you can work on the exercise intolerance. And the um, American Association of Rehab Physicians makes a big point about being very careful not to sort of rush back to exercise programs that actually are, can be discouraging or that can be premature. These Sometimes these signs and symptoms will last for a long period of time. So measure the return to normal function as a gradual process and be sure in all of this to attend to the very likely mental health consequences of long COVID. I probably haven't spoken enough about a patient's well-being, meaning there may well be demoralization. Those who have had mild or moderate depression may be kicked over into a more severe depression. Counseling and antidepressant medications certainly can be helpful in that setting. So that's probably one of the most important principles in the management of these patients. There are no specific treatment recommendations that I would give you now. There are no proven therapies for long COVID. I would use that language to talk to patients. And then you can immediately pivot to these are the things that we're interested in that are investigational agents that are being trialed, tried against pulmonary fibrosis for those patients who've had ARDS or to interfere with the cytokines and chemokines, like an anti-inflammatory peptide or an inhaled interferon B for a locally action acting agent in, in the lung. And then actually, I think part of our toolbox that you could reasonably turn to, for example, We've seen evidence that for people with acute, mild to moderate SARS-CoV-2, fluvoxamine actually reduces the requirement for hospitalization to a significant degree in a pretty well-conducted clinical trial. So fluvoxamine, for someone who has moderate to severe depression enough that you might think of treating them, that might be a, uh, a reasonable option simply because it's been associated with benefit with its anti-inflammatory properties. Anything else on this list like Polchicin or statins or vitamin II, I would say are experimental. I don't think there's enough evidence backing them to support them yet, but they're in study. The other, other point that I've already made is there are studies now that are going to look at the impact of SARS-CoV-2 vaccination on symptomatic long COVID. And I, so far with a couple of preliminary trials that suggest it's either beneficial or does not cause harm. To me, that's a step that would be reasonable for a clinician who's managing patients with long COVID to take. So let me summarize. It may be as many as 30% of people overall who have COVID-19 who have one or more chronic symptoms, but mostly they're self-limited. They resolve or improve in three to six months. And then there are patients who still have prolonged and relapsing symptoms that may last for longer than six months. 
that I think are a more difficult group to manage. It's clear this is a huge uh, national and global health burden. It already is. Many clinics have been set up in urban centers and academic uh, hospitals and in clinics and, and more will be needed. So I do think this is an area where we will need a primary care workforce to attend to this and a mental health care workforce. And we just still are struggling with the various different types of pathogenesis, as well as the full scope and scale of the problem. But without question, it's here and it's really an important thing to deal with. Vaccination may be protective against uh, long COVID or the post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. It's another good reason to encourage vaccination to address our patients to work on vaccine hesitancy. And uh, I also think this paper that showed a potential benefit in those people who have long COVID who are unvaccinated adds additional weight to the use of vaccination in that setting. But our understanding of long COVID is just incomplete. And uh, I would say this is another one of those areas where staying close to the literature and using respected, credible sources of information is going to be very important. It, it is very reminiscent of the early days of HIV back in the 1980s when we were just learning month by month the different clinical manifestations of this new virus and how best we could take care of it. So I'm really uh, pleased to see all the people who've tuned in and, and uh, very happy to answer questions. So I'll, I'll pass this back to Sarah. Thanks. Wonderful, and thank you, Dr. Shearer, for that excellent presentation. As you mentioned, we've had a number of questions come in from participants, and we'll do our best to answer as many as we can now. And so the first question uh, comes to us from several participants who asked a similar question. Are there any differences in long COVID based on the variant? I'm pretty sure I'm going to be saying with each one of your questions, yeah, that's a great question, and we don't have a complete answer because, of course, the Omicron variant came to the United States November and December, really didn't get into full swing until December, January. So we're only three months into our experience. I think there are likely to be because we did see substantial differences. For example, just to compare the two biggest, most recent uh, outbreaks with Delta and with Omicron, where Delta had more respiratory involvement, more initial hypoxia, more a greater percentage of people going to intensive care with ARDS. We saw a lesser likelihood of a need for oxygenation with Omicron, even among unvaccinated people who were hospitalized, and actually a higher frequency of gastrointestinal signs and symptoms. But it's too early to tell with, uh, with Omicron, except that we are seeing people who have persistent symptoms, so that is certainly being reported. Some of the literature that I cited earlier actually was related to either alpha or to delta. And so probably you should think of the bulk of the literature, certainly those data that go out six and 12 months, those are relating to the initial waves with alpha and some of the three to six month data now we're seeing with, with delta. So I think there are likely to be, but we haven't been able to categorize them as clearly. And this, I'll just use this as an opportunity to talk about how difficult this research is. So if I were going to try to make that comparison between people with Omicron and long COVID and people with Delta, I would also then need to know, were they or were they not vaccinated? Were they or were they not boosted? And then to further subdivide them by their age, which is the strongest predictor of the acute illness and severity of illness and the strongest predictor of death, stronger actually than 
all of the other comorbidities. Probably the next strongest is diabetes and then many of the other immunocompromising conditions like cancer on current chemotherapy on recent transplant, HIV that is severe or untreated. So it gets very difficult to specifically just look at one factor in the development of long COVID because of all these other factors. I would add into that now in the modern era, you'd have to ask the question, did they or did they not receive monoclonal antibodies and what impact might that have had? It's a very interesting question also, what is the impact of the new antiviral therapies that we have in our toolbox, Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, in blunting or changing the likelihood of long COVID? That's um, an unanswered question at, at the current time. So as I'm fielding these questions, I'm probably going to say, that's a good question and add to the question and, and then end up saying, I don't know. But I think in this case, I, I think there is a likelihood that as we've seen differences in the variants in their acute inf in impact, that we are likely to see differences as well in the incidence and the severity and the clinical manifestations of long COVID. Wonderful. And, and thank you for expounding on that as well, because we did have a question kind of related to what you spoke about to, you know, how would you design a clinical trial to look at this and, and how would you structure uh, research related to this? So that was all very helpful. We had another question come in from Alberto who asked, what is the role of telehealth in the management of long COVID, particularly in the primary care setting? Oh, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for the question, Alberta. I think telehealth is here to stay. Our patients really like it and they like the convenience and they like increased access. So I think it's a very valuable tool. And now since I'm old guard and old school, I have to tell you right away, I don't think it's sufficient. I think it's, it's um, you know, a little bit better than a telephone call, which we've always used as a way to keep in touch with patients. I suppose it stands alongside social media as well as any way that you can stay connected with a patient, particularly I'm an HIV clinician, so I worry most about will or won't somebody take their HIV medications and what can I do to support that. So I find uh, telehealth to be a tremendous advantage and helped us to get through all of the COVID-19 waves with still having our patients having pretty good connection and to stay in relationship with them and encourage good adherence practices and to, to hear about new signs and symptoms. But it's not a substitute. And I think I'll spin this now the other way. I think it's very important that we get our patients back physically in clinic regularly enough for us to do our work, for us to teach our medical students and residents, and to establish that personal physical connection that involves physical examination and watching and reading somebody's body language. And you can do some of that with telehealth. That is one of its advantages to be able to lay eyes on the patient and see how they look like, see, do they. Are they answering you directly? Are they making eye contact through the screen? Do they have the body habitus of someone who has been exercising or is physically comfortable? Or are they in chronic pain? Or do they appear to be demoralized or depressed? These are, these are important parts of the e-visit that I think are um, available with telehealth. I have to say a lot of my patients are challenged and I personally, as an old guard guy, I'm challenged by telehealth. So we had to use our portal in our clinic through that used uh, the Epic electronic medical record system. 
I was able to figure it out and get on there most of the time, not all of the time. And my patients, I'd say only about half the time could negotiate all their way through every screen and every click in order to actually find me and get to have that interview. And that, of course, was HIPAA protected. So that was uh, an advantage rather than just a direct call on Zoom or on FaceTime. So it is not simple. And I think before we go too far with telehealth, we have to remember substantial percent of the population don't have the technical skills or don't have active and live home internet or access to wireless or those in rural areas may not be able to to use it. And while it can be almost uh, most beneficial in rural areas, it still presents difficulties. So I just encourage clinicians to worry as much about how to get patients to come back to clinic and understand how important that is also to receive their vaccinations and updates and therapeutic interventions. So I'm impressed by the limits of telehealth uh, in spite of it being a a helpful tool. And I I think we do need to reestablish that direct connection with patients. That was a a great kind of pro and con discussion of, uh, yes, we we have and use telehealth more often, but it's not for every person and, and not for every scenario. So appreciate your comments on that. We had a question come in from Richard who states that I have seen hundreds of boosted patients with COVID-19 and am not seeing much post-COVID or or long COVID issues. And why do you think that that might be? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that view. I agree with that. There is a substantial benefit to boosting above either two doses of an mRNA vaccine or the single J&J dose. I can't tell you strongly enough how important I think it is that we get to our patients, particularly those over age 65 or with comorbidities, that everybody's eligible. And we've really failed at this in the United States. We only have two-thirds of our population who are fully vaccinated, meaning two doses of an mRNA or one dose of J&J. And to my mind, that does not meet the criteria now for fully vaccinated. We have to be, people have to be boosted to get the best benefit. And that's only 30%. We haven't even gotten to to more than half of people in the United States who've received their booster. I think that's a challenge for all of us. The the vaccination rates have fallen off. This is just people are so tired of COVID-19 and its huge impact in our schools and in our businesses and in our lives. They hate the mass and they hate the conversation and the politics around the issue that it's blunting ongoing vaccination efforts. And it's going to fall to us, to clinicians all around the country to continue to talk about it. One of the happiest things that I do in my clinic now is to ask people about, you're up to date with your vaccine, right? And if not, I'll do it right then, right there, unless I've got a strong contraindication or some reason not to do it. And so I think part of this is on the medical profession, health professionals, and, you know, all of our communities to continue to beat this drum. There was a very interesting piece in the in a lay paper last week making the analogy of between where do we stand with COVID-19 now in the post-vaccination and boosted era. For those who are boosted, it's probably now at the level of severity of, of influenza. So an overall mortality rate that's actually quite low, but 10 times or eight to 10 times lower than the original COVID-19 waves in unvaccinated individuals. And the analogy to influenza is probably apt because, you know, it's not so easy to get our patients to take flu shots or even to take the subject seriously. 
And yet it wasn't only a few years ago when we had 80,000 Americans die from an influenza epidemic that was quite severe and it sort of went unnoticed. Now that's nothing compared to the million people that uh, will have died from COVID-19 soon. As I said, one, one in 10, one-tenth of the severity. But in the United States, people have not taken influenza as seriously as they should because all you need to do is get a vaccine and then you're protected from the most serious consequences of death and severe, severe illness. That's where we are now. And I think that's probably the future with, with SARS-CoV-2. So I think it's very important that we take the responsibility for continuing to talk about vaccination and particularly about boosting. Great. And your response kind of got into another question that we had from Sheila. And I'm just curious if you have anything more to add. Uh, Sheila asks if there's any update or any rationale for use of an annual COVID vaccine, especially for preventing long COVID. Yeah, I take all of my advice from Rochelle Walensky, who I know personally, and CDC that I respect deeply. In spite of fits and starts and some um, mistakes, they have not been without their flaws during COVID-19. And yet, the current both administration and their management of the information, I think, has been superb. And there's no recommendation at this moment for annual vaccination. And we're sort of waiting to see where do we go with the impact of basically uh, boosted individuals. So I think the in the United States, our, our current feeling is that with a booster, you have a high degree of protection, and that is durable protection. We have seen reports, it was just a report this week in the New England Journal about the study from Israel that showed waning of the booster in elderly uh, Israelis over age 60. And they've taken the step of starting with a fourth dose, sort of the same idea as what the questioner uh, is asking. Sheila said, should we do this every year? Well, getting a boost periodically does make may make sense if we clearly demonstrate that there's waning of the effect of the three doses, and I'll take that, taking Pfizer or Moderna of the three doses. But we haven't seen it to that extent yet that the degree of benefits is sufficient to warrant that. And then I just got through telling you, thinking about a fourth dose when we haven't actually succeeded with two thirds of Americans in getting the third dose is a little practically premature. I do think that it's clear that a fourth dose already is indicated for a, a substantial number of people, those who are immune compromised. So those who have recent transplant or cancer with chemotherapy and hematologic malignancies or untreated and severe HIV, that's a population where a fourth dose is already recommended because they don't have the ability to mount a full immune response to any vaccination. In the United Kingdom, I understand they're also embarking, based on similar data, offering a fourth dose to over age 65 individuals. So another answer to Sheila's question is, it may be that there are some subpopulations where we're going to recommend additional boosters over time that may be annual or not. But I would say stay tuned for now. And the other answer, Sheila, that we're not getting good enough data on is, you know, there's two different forms of responses to vaccines. There's the humoral response, and we can measure antibody levels, which pretty easily, which is why everybody does that in clinical trials. But the cellular immune response, which is actually more durable, is learned following the initial uh, response to a vaccine. And then 
is greatly enhanced with boosting seems to be very intense and durable at the present time. So we're, we're seeing that cellular immunity looks like it's pretty strong with very little waning. It's also interesting, this was a point that was made in a plenary session at the re recent retrovirus conference, that the adenovirus vector vaccines, the Janssen and Janssen, J&J &J vaccine, and AstraZeneca vaccine seem to have less waning over time than the Pfizer BNTs, than the mRNA vaccines. So it's not clear that there's the same level of change over time with that population. Still, as a matter of public policy in the United Kingdom, they have taken the step to better protect their seniors to offer a fourth dose. So I, I think probably that's the next consideration that will be given by CDC here in the United States to those who are most vulnerable. We already recommend the fourth dose to immune compromised individuals. So it's a little bit of a complicated answer. It's, you know, when we think about the analogy to influenza, that's not quite apt with the coronavirus vaccine because every year there's a somewhat different strain that we have to predict based on past performance and the likelihood of what are we going to see that's going to be circulating this year for influenza and then base uh, vaccinations on that. And we know that we do that because it's seasonal. We've seen coronavirus has no respect for seasons and there's waves in the summer and waves in the fall. And now we're seeing another wave in Europe, even among folks who are largely vaccinated and boosted. And there aren't, there isn't a huge rise either in deaths or in hospitalizations yet. So we're gonna watch that closely and everybody expects that we're going to start to see a rise again in cases in the United States. And if you look at some of the CDC website um, reporting on wastewater, that's probably where we're going to get our first look at are we beginning to see new circulating cases? And is it the same variant or a, a different variant? So a lot of complicated questions. I, I wanna just go back also on this question of, can we study which variant has led to which illness? Well, that's also messy because we don't actually have simple reporting on an individual's virus and what, which variant they had. We're, we can make best guesses across a population, but that also complicates ongoing research. Thank you very much to Dr. Shearer and thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the full COVID-19 Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.